Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us out this afternoon. Thank you for the blessings we've been receiving here at camp meeting. And I pray, Lord, now that as we go through this topic of church authority, that we would have a clear understanding of your desire and your will for the church at this time. So give me the words to speak and may the message be clear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title for today is Confusion on Ecclesiology and Church Authority. Um, Unless you've been totally cloistered somewhere away from what's happening in the church, you understand that there are some challenges in the current territory where we are in our division and as it affects the world church. And so we're going to be addressing that today. And hopefully this will give you an understanding for why we have uh, a church body. So that's where we're headed. Just briefly, I've mentioned this in all of my talks. If you're interested in this book that I have coming out on Daniel, it'll be coming out in the next few weeks, so you can be looking for that. Let's get right into our message. Revelation chapter 12, 17 We know the famous verse which says the dragon was wroth with a woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We are that remnant church who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And Ellen White says in the book Publishing Ministry 389, it is as certain that we have the truth as that God lives. And Satan with all his arts and hellish power cannot change the truth of God into a lie While the great adversary will try his utmost to make of none effect the word of God, truth must go forth as a lamp that burneth. So, you know, we read this statement and we're like, wow, we are the church, that it is as certain that we have the truth as that God lives. We are that church. But that has led to complacency by thinking that having the truth is enough. Acts of the Apostles, page 12, says, During ages of spiritual darkness, The church of God has been as a city set on a hill. From age to age, through successive generations, the pure doctrines of heaven have been unfolding within its borders. Enfeebled and defective as it may be, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. So God's church is his body. It's the theater of grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. And this, within the borders of this church, is where the pure doctrines of heaven have been unfolding. Once you start to separate yourself from the border of God's church, you set yourself up for significant difficulty. Now, here's the reality. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29 tell us of God's church that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And if you're paying attention even now, the stage is being set for the shaking to take place. And in fact, it probably, to a certain degree, already is taking place based on the lines that are being drawn within the church and the stands that people are taking. You know, interestingly, Christ says to his Laodicean church that if we don't repent, if we are not zealous and repent, if we stay lukewarm, He will vomit us out of his mouth. That means we will be shaken out of his body because you will be expelled from the body of Christ or shaken out. So the message to the Laodicean church actually connects to the message of the shaking. 
Ellen White says in early writings 270, I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. Now here's one of the interesting things that I see in the church. One camp in the church wants us to tone down the message so that we will be more seeker-sensitive, so that people would be more attracted to coming to our churches. And yet when I look at what inspiration tells us what's going to happen before Jesus comes back is that there's going to be an amplification of our message, not a dumbing down of the message. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight tooth, excuse me, straight truth. Some will not bear the straight testimony. They will rise up against it, and this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. So now is not the time to be dumbing down the message. Now is the time to be pouring forth the straight truth from the true witness, Jesus Christ, to the Laodiceans. And then Ellen White goes on to say that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. You know, my wife and I heard about a church that started recently somewhere in the United States, and it is a church that's targeting young people, and a comment that a young lady told to another person who told my wife the story said that one of the things she liked about the church was that she felt comfortable there because she didn't feel bad for the sins in her life. You know, that's, if we come to church and we walk out without any conviction and we don't feel the need for deep repentance, we are on the wrong path. I know for myself, just being here this week and hearing Pastor Finley and Pastor Shin and some of the other speakers, my heart has been convicted. And that's the type of messages that the Holy Spirit is going to bring before Jesus comes back. Uh, a message that will work deep repentance in our hearts. Now let me just say this, the church as it is right now, as it appears right now, is not how it will be on the other side of the shaking. If you think that lukewarm Laodicean Seventh-day Adventist Christianity is the model of the church that needs to be as it is before Jesus comes back, we're in for a rude awakening because we're not going to stay this way. The reality is we have schools teaching Darwinian evolution under the guise of academic freedom. We have schools that are creating LGBT support groups on campus not to help them understand the Bible and lead them to Christ, but to encourage them in their lifestyle where they will feel supported and understood. We have unions and an entire division standing up to the authority of the General Conference. We are facing the greatest crisis yet in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, it's easy to kind of put our head in the sand, so to speak, and just go to our local church from week to week, Sabbath to Sabbath, participate in our local church, and we need to be doing that, and we need to be involved in making a difference where we are in our local church territory. But the reality is that where we are as a denomination, as a world church body, and with what's happening in the division that we live in, this is the greatest crisis in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We've never seen anything like this before. 
We do not know exactly how this will all play out, and that is what can be unsettling. Now, the comforting fact is that we have been told that the ship will go through, but we aren't given the details on how the ship will go through. So what's happening now? We are leading up to the ship hitting the iceberg. That's the undeniable reality. The ship is going to hit the iceberg. We don't know when, but when we look at what's happening in the church, it leads us to the understanding that the iceberg is getting closer and closer. Second Selected Messages, page 380, says, The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out, the chaff separated from the precious wheat. Now, let me stop right there before I keep reading. Some people say, the church is so bad, I'm out of here. Guess what? Those who remain will be the wheat who are preserved from the sinners who will be sifted out. So if you jump ship, you're separating from the body of Christ and you're sifting yourself out. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place, and it needs to take place. Friends, we have two versions of Adventism under one administrative structure, and it cannot stay this way forever. There's no way. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true, without spot or stain of sin, without guile in their mouths. We must be divested of our self-righteousness and arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. So listen, only those who are the overcomers by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony are going to be the precious wheat that will remain while the sinners in Zion are sifted out. So one of the other things that I see is that this false theology of righteousness by faith that teaches that we can be saved in our sins is preparing many Seventh-day Adventists to receive the mark of the beast and to be sifted out. Now, this is the shaking that we are facing as a church, but I want to go back to the origin of rebellion, and what I'm going to do here is I'm going to basically show you, I'm going to give you a roadmap of where we're headed. What we're going to look at is how the rebellion in heaven began, and how that mirrors what happened with the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and some of the startling similarities that we see with the church crisis today. So we're going to look at the rebellion of Lucifer in heaven, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and if we're honest with ourselves, we'll just call it what it is, the rebellion that's happening in the church today. We're going to start with Story of Redemption, page 15. There was contention among the angels. Lucifer and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. See, look, Lucifer wasn't necessarily at the beginning out and out trying to overthrow God's government. He was trying to make it better. They were discontented and unhappy because they could not look into his unsearchable wisdom and ascertain his purposes in exalting his son and endowing him with such unlimited power and command. They rebelled against the authority of the son, which by the way, as I've talked about in the first two presentations this week, one of the reasons why Satan is working through the anti-Trinitarian movement is because he's trying to diminish the authority of Christ. And Satan was not content with the role that God had given him. Does that sound familiar? 
Christ had his designated role, and Lucifer had his designated role, and Lucifer was discontented and unhappy about the role that had been given him, and so he sought to reform God's government so that his role could be changed within the government of God. It's interesting that those seeds of rebellion follow the same playbook as we go down through history. The same idea when we look at the rebellion of Korodathan and Abiram, and as we look at what's happening in the church today, many are rebelling because they are not satisfied with the role that God has given them. And listen, friends, I'll take, by the grace of God, the lowest assigned role that could be known, if there were any roles in heaven when we get to the kingdom, I'll take the least role possible. I just want to be there. I don't need to be rivaling the angels or Christ or Moses or whoever it is that will be given high honor in the kingdom. I don't want to be near the top. I just want to be in the kingdom. And so one of the issues with rebellion has to do with people or beings or individuals who are not satisfied with the role that God has given them. Ellen White goes on to say, now this is volume 2, Selected Messages, page 393. We're going to transition here to Dathan and Abiram. She says, I question whether genuine rebellion is ever curable. Once you get the rebellion bug in your blood, you better watch out. Satan, think about this, Lucifer. He was the covering cherub next to Christ of all the created beings who have ever been Lucifer of anybody should have known of the benevolence and the love of God. But once the rebellion bug gathered in his heart and mind, he couldn't shake it. Now, by the grace of God, we can overcome all things. But Ellen White says, I question whether genuine rebellion is ever curable. Study in Patriarchs and Prophets the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This rebellion was extended, including more than two men. It was led by 250 princes of the congregation, men of renown. Call rebellion by its right name and apostasy by its right name. And then consider that the experience of the ancient people of God, with all its objectionable features, was faithfully chronicled the past into history. There's a reason why that rebellion is chronicled, because God knew that it would come back around again, and the way God dealt with rebellion then, he will ultimately deal with it in the judgment, and so we should all take stock of whose side we are on. You know, when Ellen White says, I question whether genuine rebellion is ever curable, I think I said this yesterday, as my friend Ed Reed told me, when you deal with people who are into fanaticism, and I think this would apply to rebellion as well, it's like trying to reason with a teenager who has fallen in love with the wrong person. And that's basically what happened to Lucifer, and it's what happened to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Ellen White says here, call rebellion by its right name, and apostasy by its right name. Rebellion is rebellion. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it cultural conformity. You can call it being progressive. Whatever you want to call it, it's still rebellion. 
Continuing on in the statement, the scripture declares these things are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And if men and women who have the knowledge of the truth are so far separated from their great leader that they will take the great leader of apostasy and name him Christ our righteousness, it is because they have not sunk deep into the minds of the truth. They are not able to distinguish the precious ore from the base material. Now here's what's happening in the church, friends. We have people in the church claiming Christ as their righteousness while saying that we can be saved in our sins. And when we take this false gospel where we call Christ our righteousness while claiming to believe that we can be saved in our sins, we are not taking on Christ our righteousness upon ourselves. We are taking upon ourselves the great leader of apostasy named Lucifer. That's the straight testimony. Now we're going to look at this issue of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This is letter 15, 1892, found in Last Day Events 173. The history of the rebellion of Dathan and Abiram is being repeated and will be repeated till the close of time. Who will be on the Lord's side? Who will be deceived and in their turn become deceivers? You know, you look at the rebellion in heaven. Ellen White tells us that at one point, nearly half of the angels were on Lucifer's side, and thankfully, the other half of the angels were able to bring half of that group back so that it was two-thirds to one-third. We're going to get to the kingdom, and we're going to talk to angels who will say, we were on Lucifer's side until this angel here laid out some issues for me that brought me back in. And there's some angels who are evil angels now, on Lucifer's side, who were this close to going back to the Lord's side, but they were deceived by Lucifer, and he said, the Lord's not going to take you back now, you got to stay with me, and they're on the wrong team, and they're lost for eternity. And listen, friends, we are in a great controversy struggle right now. Now is not the time to be deceived and then to turn into a deceiver ourselves. We want to be on the Lord's side. We don't want to be part of history repeating itself where till the close of time we're like Dathans and Abirams running around in the church stirring up trouble and causing as much grief and pain to the heart of God as possible. Listen, if you're fighting for your rights in the church, you're on the wrong team. This isn't about you, this is about God. And we look at Numbers 16 and 17 with the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. We also can look this up in the entire chapter of Patriarchs and Prophets. It's about 10 pages, 395 to 405. I'm going to summarize some of the key points. This apostasy and rebellion began after the Lord told the children of Israel that they would stay in the wilderness for another 40 years. You know, when you have a goal to get somewhere and that goal is delayed, restlessness starts stirring in the camp. And if we're honest with ourselves as Seventh-day Adventists, none of us ever thought that we'd be here a hundred and something years, 175 years now, since 1844. So this delay of the entrance into the promised land leads to a restlessness a dissatisfaction with the purposes and plans of God. And so Korah was the ringleader, and Dathan and Abiram conspired with him. 
Korah wasn't just a nobody in the camp. He was a cousin of Moses and Aaron. He was a Levite. He was a man, he was a man of renown in the camp. He was someone that, somebody, that everyone would look up to. It was a deep laid plot and a conspiracy against God's appointed leader, Moses. God had appointed Moses to be the leader of, of his people. And Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were not satisfied with the roles that God had given them. They were disaffected that they could not go into the promised land, and they blamed Moses for leading them to die in the wilderness so he could be a prince over them. And they felt that if they could take charge, that things would go better, and perhaps they even thought they could lead the children of Israel into the promised land in a better way. Patriarchs and Prophets 396 says, professing great interest in the prosperity of the people, they first whispered their discontent to one another and then to leading men of Israel. Their insinuations were so readily received that they ventured still further, and at last they really believed themselves to be actuated by zeal for God. So they're going against God's purposes, against God's will, but they thought that they had a zeal for God. How many times have you seen people in the church who will go against the clearly expressed will of God, whether it has to do with the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, our prophetic message, or whatever else it may be, but they'll use the name of God under the auspices of a social gospel to try to make it look like they're actuated by zeal for God, all the while undermining all of the foundational pillars of the very message that God has raised up for them this time. Next page says they were successful in alienating 250 princes, men of renown in the congregation, with these strong and influential supporters. They felt confident of making a radical change in the government and greatly improving upon the administration of Moses and Aaron. Jealousy had given rise to envy and envy to rebellion. They were jealous of the position of Moses and Aaron. That gave rise to envy, which led to rebellion, where they were ready to overthrow God's appointed leaders. The next work of the conspirators, this is still page 397 of Patriarchs and Prophets, the next work of the conspirators was with the people. So now they have the leaders on board. They have a team of leaders ready to go. Now they got to work on the people. To those who are in the wrong and deserving of reproof, there is nothing more pleasing than to receive sympathy and praise. You know, it's, it was interesting to me as I was reading online as Desmond Ford passed away recently, and a number of people talked about how his gospel of grace relieved them from the anxiety of dealing with the sin in their lives. To those who are in the wrong and deserving of reproof, there is nothing more pleasing than to receive sympathy and praise. And thus Korah and his associates gained the attention and enlisted the support of the congregation. The charge that the murmurings of the people had brought upon them the wrath of God was declared to be a mistake. They said that the congregation were not at fault since they desired nothing more than their rights. See that? They just desired their rights but that Moses was an overbearing ruler, that he had reproved the people as sinners when they were a holy people and the Lord was among them. I mean, I've been astonished by some of the articles that have been written in certain magazines in the last year or two comparing the current general conference president to po the Pope or to Stalin 
things of that nature, just completely ridiculous charges against a godly man. And that's the spirit of rebellion. People fighting for their rights, charging godly leaders with being overbearing for simply following the, the Word of God and then getting the people on their side and saying, we want a leader who will be sympathetic to our difficulties and to the sins in our lives and who will make us feel okay for why we live the way we live because we need grace and mercy, not a reminder that we need deep repentance. Going on, in this work of disaffection, this is page 398 of Patriarchs and Prophets, there was greater union and harmony among the discordant elements of the congregation than had ever before existed. Korah's success with the people increased his confidence and confirmed him in his belief that the usurpation of authority by Moses, if unchecked, would be fatal to the liberties of Israel. He also claimed that God had opened the matter to him and had authorized him to make a change in the government before it should be too late. So there are some who claim that the general conference is usurping its authority and is being dictatorial and all of these kinds of things, and that they are here to stand up for the rights of the people. You've probably heard similar sentiments. Eventually, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram bring the rebellion out into the open once they have enough support. Moses had not suspected this plot, it was clear that the majority of the congregation had sympathy with the rebellion. Very sad. After coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, the miraculous deliverances, the majority sided with the rebellion. Now, in Patriarchs and Prophets 3.99, it says, Dathan and Abiram had not taken so bold a stand as had Korah, and Moses, hoping that they might have been drawn into the conspiracy without having become wholly corrupted, summoned them to appear before him that he might hear their charges against him. But they would not come, and they insolently refused to acknowledge his authority. Their reply, uttered in the hearing of the congregation, was, Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? So, wow, so they're supposed to be going to a land of milk and hun honey away from a land of slavery, and they're saying Egypt was the land of milk and honey. That's what rebellion does to us, where we end up viewing the present life and this earth as what we are living for rather than the heavenly Canaan. They go on to say, Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Thus they applied to the scene of their bondage the very language in which the Lord had described the promised inheritance. It's amazing how we will often live our lives as if this earth is the only heaven we will ever know. Now, moving along here, 1 Samuel 15, 23 says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as wickedness and idolatry. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all their families, we know the story, they were told um, to repent. They obviously didn't. And then Moses said, Separate yourselves from the tents of these wicked people. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and all their families were swallowed up as the earth opened up. Then, after that, the 250 men of renown, the leaders who had 
teamed up with them, were devoured by fire. And what was the response from the children of Israel? Did they say, we have sinned a great sin in siding with these rebel leaders? No, that's not what they said. They said, you have killed the people of the Lord. Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophets 401, they had been flattered by Korah and his company until they really believed themselves to be very good people and that they had been wronged and abused by Moses. Should they admit that Korah and his company were wrong and Moses right, then they would be compelled to receive as the word of God the sentence that they must die in the wilderness. They were not willing to submit to this, and they tried to believe that Moses had deceived them. So here you can see a lack of willingness to submit to the order of God. They had finally cherished the hope that a new order of things was about to be established in which praise would be substituted for reproof and ease for anxiety and conflict. You know, nobody likes anxiety and conflict in the church, but there comes a time when it's better to stand up against apostasy than to let the apostasy come in and ruin the church. And we need people in the church who will actually have a spine by the grace of God to stand up to the rebellion that's taking place. The men who had perished had spoken flattering words and had professed great interest and love for them. And the people concluded that Korah and his companions must have been good men and that Moses had by some means been the cause of their destruction. Page 403, Patriarchs and Prophets, and the rebellion of Korah is seen the working out upon a narrower stage of the same spirit that led to the rebellion of Satan in heaven. It was pride and ambition that prompted Lucifer to complain of the government of God and to seek the overthrow of the order which had been established in heaven. Since his fall, it has been his object to infuse the same spirit of envy and discontent, the same ambition for position and honor into the minds of men. Listen, friends, if you are infused with a spirit of ambition for a position that God has never ordained that you should have, you better watch out for the path you're walking on. He thus worked upon the minds of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram to arouse the desire for self-exaltation and excite envy, distrust, and rebellion. Satan caused them to reject God as their leader, notice this, by rejecting the men of God's appointment. Listen, when we reject the order of leadership by God's appointment, we are rejecting God himself. In the book of Jude, we see rebellion described. We see that the false gospel turns the grace of God into lasciviousness. Those who refuse to submit to God and the true gospel rebel against God. And then we see the pattern that develops. The children of Israel were destroyed who did not believe because they did not submit to the leadership that God had given them. In Jude verse 6, the fallen angels left the glory of heaven because they would not submit to Christ. Now they're waiting for the day of judgment. In Jude verse 11, we see Cain, Balaam, and Korah, all who refused to submit to the authority of God. And what we see is that a false gospel, which turns the grace of God into lasciviousness, meaning that the grace of God gives us license to sin, always leads to rebellion against God. So you may say, oh, this is a gospel of grace and love and mercy. This is the kind of God that I want. And what it ends up leading you to do is to reject the God of Scripture. Because yes, God is a God of mercy, love, and grace, but He's also a God of order and justice. 
Korah was dissatisfied with delay into the promised land. He led a rebellion against the leader of God's appointment, and he turned God's people against the government and order of God. It's a serious thing to be the ringleader of rebellion in God's church. Now, notice the statement in letter 184, 1901, also found in Evangelism 696, for 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins, including rebellion, have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. And if you look at that quote carefully, that does show us there is a delay in the coming of Jesus. He didn't design that we should be here this long. And if you are part of a church that is trying to be conformed to the world, and I'm just going to speak straight here, and if I happen to step on your toes, I'm not really sorry. I hope that the Spirit of God brings conviction to your heart. But let's just call it for what it is. If your church is serving coffee and donuts on Sabbath morning to attract the unchurched to your church so that they can receive the grace of God and that's turned into lasciviousness, you are not leading them to the heavenly Canaan. That is worldliness that is delaying the coming of Jesus. And if your church does not believe in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, I'll just call it for what it is. If you do not believe in the spirit of prophecy as a church, you are not Seventh-day Adventist, friends. And if you, as a church, are always fighting with contention over whatever it may be, and you're a conservative church, don't blame the liberals for the delay in the coming of Jesus if you guys are always fighting about who's going to lead out in vacation Bible school and what the color of the carpet's going to be and what your evangelism strategy is going to be for the year. And if you're fighting over who's going to be the head elder and the head deacon, those are the sins that are delaying the entrance of modern Israel into the heavenly Canaan. Going on, Ellen White says, we may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequence of their own wrong course of action. Listen, it's not the fault of God that Jesus hasn't returned. It's our fault. Insubordination, worldliness, strife, all of these things. So now let's talk about some current issues. Satan's core issue in the great controversy is his discontent with Christ's authority. Now, I've already mentioned this, but again, some of the major heresies happening today all circulate around undermining God's authority and or his delegated sources of authority. So, anti-Trinitarians denigrate Christ and the Holy Spirit's authority by claiming that they are less than what they really are because both are God. Gender equality destroys the biblical model in the home where the husband is the head, thus Christ delegated in the authority in the home is destroyed. Now notice the statement from Testimonies, Volume 1, page 457. Those who feel called out to join the movement in favor of women's rights and the so-called dress reform might as well sever all connections with the third angel's message. The spirit which attends the one cannot be in harmony with the other. The scriptures are plain upon the relations and rights of men and women. And what she's talking about here is the feminist movement, which destroys the, the order that God has placed in the home and in the church. 
And she says, if you feel called out to join that movement, which destroys the roles that God has placed in the home and in the church for men and women, you might as well sever all connection with the third angel's message. And just to be plain here, I very rarely have seen those who are interested in blurring the lines of distinction between men and women in the church and in the home, I hardly ever hear them talk about the three angels' messages because there is no connection between the feminist women's right movement that's happening in the church and the three angels' messages that God has given us as a church to take to the world. They're just a very different approach and purpose. Now, in this statement, Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 33, we read, under God, Adam was to stand at the head of the earthly family to maintain the principles of the heavenly family. This would have brought peace and happiness, but the law that none liveth to himself, Satan was determined to oppose. Because you may hear people say, oh, well, before sin, there was no distinction about the head of the home between Adam and Eve. That's not true. They were equal, but Adam still had the role of being the head of the home. And so here we see Satan tried to oppose us. He desired to live for self. He sought to make himself a center of influence. It was this that had incited rebellion in heaven, and it was man's acceptance of this principle that brought sin on earth. When Adam sinned, man broke away from the heaven-ordained center. A demon became the central power in this world. So moving along here, the women's ordination non-compliance issue usurps the authority of the general conference in session in the name of individual conscience thus rejecting God's highest delegated authority on earth. And we're going to look at this now. So in the current church crisis, how do we get here? If we understand the rightful authority that God has given us, then we would follow that authority, even if it goes against our personal wishes. Testimonies, volume 3, page 492 says, I have been shown that no man's judgment should, should be surrendered to the judgment of any one man. So we're not talking about following just what the general conference president says. But when the judgment of the general conference, which is the highest authority that God has upon the earth, is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be maintained, but be surrendered. Your error was in persistently maintaining your private judgment of your duty against the voice of the highest authority the Lord has upon the earth. So the highest authority that's upon the earth is the general conference. So when we look at the issue of women's ordination, they voted three times on this issue. The general conference in session has voted no three times on women's ordination. 1990, 1995, and 2015. In 1990, at the GC session, part of the statement of the motion says this, in view of the widespread lack of support for the ordination of women to the gospel ministry in the world church, and in view of the possible risk of disunity, dissension, and diversion from the mission of the church, we do not approve ordination of women to the gospel ministry. And that passed by a wide margin of nearly 76% to 24%. Now, five years later, the North American Division came along and said, we understand that most of the world church is not in favor of this, but could you make a variance for our division? And so the motion read like this, the general conference vests in each division the right to authorize the ordination of individuals within its territory in harmony with established policy. In addition, where circumstances do not deem it inadvisable, a division may authorize the ordination of qualified individuals without regard to gender. Now, I'm going to stop right there. These people know what they're doing with the language that they use. So when it says without regard to gender, there's a reason why they say it that way. Rather than saying men and women, they say without regard to gender, because that opens the door 
to other things. In divisions, and going on, in divisions where the division executive committee takes specific actions approving the ordination of women to the gospel ministry, women may be ordained to serve in those divisions. So at that session, the NAD president spoke for 20 minutes in favor of the motion. Um, then Dr. Domsteek, Peter R. Domsteek, spoke for 20 minutes against the motion. For full disclosure, he is my father-in-law, although he wasn't at that time, but just... Um, and then Dr. Raul Detterin, retired dean of the seminary, closed with a 20-minute presentation in favor of the motion. So basically, you had two in favor, one opposed from the platform. So they had 40 minutes hearing, oh, this is good, this will be good for the church. One presentation that said, no, it's not good. Um, after the three presentations, the issue was debated from the floor. The three main presentations, as well as the debate from the floor, was a discussion on what the Bible says about ordaining women as pastors, and also the effect it would have on the structure of the church if different divisions took different paths. The motion failed by a, vote, by a wide margin of nearly 69% to 31%. So 20 years go by, but um, those who are not happy with the outcome of this vote continue to stir the pot, and so in 2015, it was revisited. As a result of a request in 2010 that was made from the floor of the General Conference that the theology of ordination be studied. This led to the development of what we call TOSC, the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. Now, if you looked at the composition of the individuals of this committee, it was largely composed of scholars from the North American Division. There were people from other parts of the world, but it was mainly from the NAD. And TOSC had one key point of agreement, and that is that ordination is biblical. You know, some people say that ordination is a Catholic rite. That's not true. Um, you go to the book Desire of Ages in the chapter he ordained 12. Um, so ordination is biblical, but there were three different viewpoints on women's ordination. Number one, that it is biblical. Number two, that it's not biblical. Or number three, that it is not biblical, but it can still be allowed because they use the history of Israel asking for a king as the model. And I, in all kindness, have to say, you do realize that when Israel asked for a king, God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. And as a result of a king coming into Israel, eventually it led to the division of Israel where the 10 northern tribes were lost forever. That's 83% of the tribes gone and lost forever. You're left with Judah and Benjamin. And so I have a hard time believing that God wants the church to use a model of apostasy as a way to present a, a way forward. As we're saying, hey, model of apostasy, we can do this because ancient Israel apostatized and God allowed for that. Come on, friends, we're about to go into the heavenly Canaan. Let's not be promoting models of apostasy. So, the motion at the 2015 GC session after your prayerful study on ordination from the Bible, the writings of Ellen G. White, and the reports of the study commissions, and after your careful consideration of what is best for the church and the fulfillment of its mission, is it acceptable for division executive committees, as they may deem it appropriate in their territories, to make provision for the ordination of women to the gospel ministry? And this motion was debated for several hours. The debate was almost exclusively about whether women's ordination is biblical, not so much on division variance, and the final vote was an outcome of 58.4% to 41.3%, and that's kind of where we've been with some of the annual council issues since then. You know, Ellen White says in volume three of the testimonies, page 492, that the general conference is the highest authority that God has upon the earth. Three times God has spoken through the highest authority that he has. How many times does he have to say the same thing? 
Despite that, many in the church refuse to accept and acknowledge this authority. Now, what kind of authority are we talking about here? This is nine, volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 260. I have often been instructed by the Lord that no man's judgment should be surrendered to the judgment of any other one man. Never should the mind of one man or the minds of a few men be regarded as sufficient in wisdom and power to control the work and to say what plan shall be followed. But when in a general conference the judgment of the brethren assembled from all parts of the field is exercised, private independence and private judgment must not be stubbornly maintained, but surrendered. Never should a laborer regard as a virtue the persistent maintenance of his position of independence contrary to the decision of the general body. So notice here, this is a decision that is being made by the the brethren from all parts of the field, the world church. So it's hard to stack the deck with politics, so to speak, when the entire world field is involved in making a decision. And you can trust that decision because the Holy Spirit is going to move upon hearts of the men and women who are voting. And we can have confidence that this is the voice of God. And then she says, at times when a small group of men entrusted with the general management of the group have in the name of the general conference sought to carry out unwise plans and to restrict God's work, I have said that I could no longer regard the voice of the general conference represented by these few men as the voice of God. But this is not saying that the decisions of a general conference composed of, of an assembly of duly appointed representative men from all parts of the field should not be respected. God has ordained that the representatives of his church from all parts of the earth, when assembled in a general conference, shall have authority. Listen, friends, when a general conference in session makes a decision where the entire body of delegates votes on that issue, you may not like the outcome of that decision, but Ellen White says that decision shall have authority. So here's some modern applications. God had invested Moses with the authority to lead his people. God spoke with Moses face to face. Moses was invested with divine authority to execute God's will for his people. Kor rebelled against that authority and stirred up God's people to follow his insubordination. In the current church crisis, God has invested the general conference in session with authority to direct and lead his church. Now, we do not have a living prophet like Moses that speaks to God face to face, as did Moses. We don't have Ellen White alive anymore either. But the prophet that God gave to his last day church says that the general conference in session is the highest authority on earth. Thus, the general conference in session is invested with divine authority to execute God's will for his last day church. The general conference leadership, including the president and the general conference executive committee, are responsible for implementing what is voted at a general conference in session. You know, I've heard some say, oh, the the general conference president, he's exercising kingly authority. Well, let's think of it the other way. If the general conference president said, I don't like the decision that the session made, so I'm just going to do the opposite thing, that would be the definition of kingly authority. But when the general conference president implements what the session has voted, that, that what the session votes is what is invested with the authority from God. And so the president and the leadership team and the executive committee are responsible to implement what the world church body has voted. So there are two unions in North America that voted in 2012 to proceed with ordaining without regard to gender. They have not backed down from their votes despite being out of harmony with what has been voted at the general conference in session in 1990, 1995, and 2015. As a result of the ongoing noncompliance, the general conference executive committee voted at the 2018 annual council to start a process of dealing with noncompliant entities. And it was a similar vote margin, 59.5% to 39 
6.9%. Now, shortly after the annual council, the North American Division held its year-end meeting. At this meeting, the president of the NAD said that the NAD would continue to agitate the issue of women's ordination despite the votes by the General Conference. They also voted to discuss with the General Conference of coming into financial parity within two or three years that passed by a wide mar margin. In other words, what they're saying is they want to cut back how much tithe they send from the NAD on to the World Church from 6% to 2%. Now, they can't just say they're going to do that. They have to come to an agreement with the General Conference. But obviously, the appearance was there that they took this vote as a retaliation to what happened with the annual council compliance document. As in the rebellion of Korah, certain entities within the church are refusing to submit to God's delegated authority on earth. In Korah's day, Moses was God's appointed leader to delegate the authority of God. In our day, the general conference in session is God's delegated authority. Now, you may ask, why is the general conference in session the highest authority that God has on earth? So think about it this way. It's because God can more clearly reveal his will through the voice of the entire world field than he can through one person, one church, one conference, one union, or one division. So one division may think that they have the clearest understanding of an issue, but God speaks most clearly through a wider body than through a smaller body. In other words, he can more easily lead through us than through me. Does that make sense? Biblical submission, let's talk a little bit about submission, which is a very negative word, but it's in the Bible. Submission to authority acknowledges that there may be times when submission is required when there is disagreement. Submission to authority is not really submission if we say, I will only submit if you can show me why I should agree with you. Sometimes God does not have to explain why. He's God. And we may find out when we get to the kingdom why he set things up the way he did. So there's this biblical order of authority. You know, in Ephesians 5 where it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, some would say, see, we submit to each other. But that's not what that verse actually means. What that verse is saying that there's a biblical order of authority. And so if you follow this order of authority, in Ephesians 6.1, children submit to parents. In Ephesians 5.22, the wife submits to the husband. In Ephesians 5.23-25, to 25, the husband is the head of the wife and submits to Christ and loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Men lead in the home and in the church. Ephesians 5.23 and 1 Timothy 3.1-5. You know, in 1 Timothy 3, it says... The bishop is the husband of one wife, one who rules over his house well. And it says, for if a man doesn't know how to take care of his house, how shall he or rule his own house? How shall he take care of the church of God? So the clear qualifier for the leader, the pastor, the bishop, and the church is that you are a man. And if you say, no, it just means a faithful spouse, then you could be the husband of one wife, the wife of, an, of one husband, or as some of the other churches are now saying, the husband of one husband or the wife of one wife. That's why churches that have accepted women's ordination inevitably go down the path toward accepting homosexuality in their churches. So Christ is the head of the church. But, while people will say he's the only head of the church, 
Scripture also identifies very clearly, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 is one example, that Christ delegates authority in the church to overseers such as pastors and elders. So you can say, I'm only going to submit to Christ, but if you're not submitting to the overseers he has placed as the people with authority in the church that he has invested with authority, then you're not really submitting to Christ. The church is to submit to Christ and to his authority. So again, the highest authority on earth is the general conference and session. So you say, I'm only going to submit to Christ because he's the only head of the church. But then you say, I will not submit to the decisions of a general conference in session. Then you really are not following Christ as the leader of the church. You know, many resist authority in the church. Conscience over God's authority is the name of the game for many today. Lack of submission in the home and in the church ultimately leads to lack of submission to Christ and his delegated authority. Many women's ordination advocates compare themselves to Martin Luther. They compare the general conference to the papacy. They say true reformers are are viewed as rebels, but the distinction is this. Martin Luther was standing up to the power identified in Revelation 13.2, of whom it is said that the dragon gave his power, seat, and authority to this beast known as the papacy. And the general conference represents God's denominated end-time remnant church of Bible prophecy. And God is actually speaking through a general conference and session where we can have confidence that this represents the voice of God. So when you stand up to that, don't call yourself a Martin Luther. You really are a rebel. However, those who sincerely think they are advocates of reform are actually rebels when opposing God's delegated authority. Now, here's the other thing. Many are calling for unity in the church, unity and diversity, etc. But the only way that unity happens is when all parties recognize and accept their role and place under the rightful authority. Because if we can't agree on who has the authority in God's church, then how are we ever going to be united? There has to be an understanding of that. Now think about this. Unity could only have been brought about in heaven only if Lucifer submitted to Christ's authority. There was no other way. We couldn't have come up with a third option. Either you submit to Christ's authority or you do not. That's the only way there's going to be unity. The cry of unity while not submitting to rightful authority is really hypocritical. True unity will never occur if we resist being in our place in relation to the rightful authorities that God has placed in our lives. So where are we headed? This is Selected Messages, Volume 1, 205. Shortly before I sent out the testimonies regarding the efforts of the enemy to undermine the foundation of our faith through the dissemination of seductive theories, I had read an incident about a ship and a fog meeting an iceberg. For several nights I slept but little. I seemed to be bowed down as a cart beneath sheaves. One night a scene was clearly presented before me. A vessel was upon the waters in a heavy fog. Suddenly the lookout cried, Iceberg just ahead! There, towering high above the ship, was a gigantic iceberg. An authoritative voice cried out, Meet it! There was not a moment's hesitation. It was a time for instant action. The engineer put on full steam, and the man at the wheel steered the ship straight into the iceberg. With a crash, he struck the ice. There was a fearful shock, and the iceberg broke into many pieces, falling with a noise like thunder to the deck. The passengers were violently shaken by the force of the collisions, but no lives were lost. The vessel was injured but not beyond repair. She rebounded from the contact, trembling from stem to stern like a living creature. Then she moved forward on her way. And friends, that's what we need to happen in our church. There's going to be injury, but we'll move forward and 
the, the unrighteous are going to be shaken out. Going on, next page. Well, I knew the meaning of this representation. I had my orders. I had heard the words like a voice from our captain, meet it. I knew what my duty was and that there was not a moment to lose. The time for decided action had come. I must, without delay, obey the command, meet it. Friends, we need to stand up and have a spine in the church. Stop letting the other side dictate the terms of the discussion, the discussion and stand up for what's right in the Spirit of Christ. Volume 2, Selected Messages 380. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out, the chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless it must take place. And I've highlighted this section here. None but those who have been overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true, without spot or stain of sin, without guile in their mouths. We must be divested of our self-righteousness and arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. So the message of overcoming is a key element to being prepared for the last crisis. And then here is the famous statement from Education, page 57. The greatest want of the world is the want of men, men who will not be bought or sold, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest, men who do not fear to call sin by its right name, men whose conscience, conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole, men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Friends, we are in dire need of people in the church who will stand for the right though the heavens fall and stop playing politics. Call sin for what it is. Call rebellion for what it is and stand on the Lord's side. And my final appeal is stay with the church. Don't jump ship and say, well, I don't like the way the division's headed, so I'm out of here. No, we need faithful Adventists to stay in the church and to make your voice heard. We have too many silent members hiding in the caves like Obadiah's prophets in the time of Elijah. Stand for the right though the heavens fall, and be part of the solution. Listen, friends, this church will go through. But it's not going to go through while the majority of God's faithful people are sitting back in inactivity on the back seat, hoping to stay out of anxiety and conflict and just saying, I'll be a silent witness until Jesus comes. Listen, friends, if you're a silent witness, it's a true term. Your witness is silent and you aren't witnessing. God needs people who will stand up for the right, though the heavens fall, who will call sin by its right name, and not even on this particular issue, but on any particular issue in the church. In the love of Christ, make your voice heard and be part of the solution. God will have a people on the earth who will make the Bible and the Bible only as the rule for all practice, belief, and doctrine. The future of Adventism, as I see from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, is a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The future of Adventism is not a declension into cultural conformity and worldliness where there seems to be hardly any difference between the way we live and the world practices. No, the future of Adventism will be a revival of a church that will be representatives of Christ on this earth so that he can come to claim us as his own. And I pray that each one of us will be part of that solution. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your remnant people at this time of earth's history. Lord, we see that we're in a crisis. 
And sometimes we don't know what's going to happen and how it's all going to play out. But Lord, I pray that we would be found on the Lord's side and that we would stand for the right though the heavens fall and that you would work through each one of us to be part of the solution and that we would be found faithful when you come. May we stay on the ship and as it hits the iceberg, may we stay on and keep as many on with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.